From WPVM LP in Asheville, this is the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Lexi Harvey. And I'm Jonathan Ammons, and this is Paul Spring. Statue in the backyard He's got his head in his hands I'm looking down through the bars And I don't feel so So, John, what was the first thing that you learned to cook? Oh, man. Uh, well, I mean, the first thing I learned to cook was like mac and cheese. But I think the big thing I learned to cook was when I was in college, I taught myself to cook rice because I really liked rice. And now I look back and I'm like, man, I'm so glad I started with rice because so many people struggle with rice mm. and can't figure out how to make it. But it taught me like two important things. One, that to make good food, sometimes you just leave the thing alone and let it cook and don't touch it because if you touch it, you'll ruin it. Mm -hmm. And then also that the thing that I thought was going to be really hard was shockingly more easy than I thought. But what was yours? Um, I think mine was microwaved scrambled eggs oh, in wow. a bowl. How do you do that? <laughs> um, well, I was probably like 
seven when I learned this uh, this kitchen hack. Uh, you could put crack some eggs in a uh, mason jar, huh. add some milk, uh, shake them up, and then put pour all of that into a bowl and put it in the microwave for a minute. Huh. Uh, like every 20 seconds, you'd check on it, you'd take it out, you'd uh, like... Sculpt it? Sculpt it, or like it would like fluff up like a big marshmallow, and then you'd kind of fold it in on itself. Really? And then put it back in for 20 seconds and kind of do the same thing. And it doesn't like stick to the sides or anything? It doesn't stick to the sides. Huh. I didn't even know you could scramble eggs. I know, yeah. <laughs> That's a great one to teach a kid. Mm-hmm. Yep. Huh. Too young to, you know, put water on the stove too short to probably reach the stove but young enough to put something in the in the microwave yeah i feel like that's an important thing for kids is to like learn that first scary lesson of like because you see like the grandmas and the grandpas or grandmas and the moms in the kitchen like bumming around like making the food before holidays and things and you think that it's just like magic and then when you actually, or that it might be too, really difficult or that it's unattainable in some way. And then when you like are taught to do it yourself, it's, it's like, oh, wait, I can do that. Like mm-hmm. I can do more of that. I think yeah. that's a really important lesson for a kid is that it's not, those things aren't unattainable. It's not that scary. And that it's a lot of work. Yeah. It's a lot of work to make your own food. Oh, for sure. God bless the moms and the grandmas. <laughs> for sure. When California poet and writer Erica Goss was growing up, she learned some deep lessons when she learned to make zucchini bread, both about herself and about her neighbors. I am 12 years old and afraid of everything. Even the name of my street, Alcatraz Avenue, scares me. From the sidewalk, looking west on a clear day, I can see Alcatraz Island, a black lump rising out of the San Francisco Bay, the rock site of the maximum security prison until 1963. My mother, two younger brothers, and I ended up here in a grungy North Oakland commune after a tumultuous year of traveling from California to Kentucky and back in the wake of my parents' oscillating breakups and reconciliations. My college professor father lives in Richmond with a girlfriend. They break up, and he moves in with us. It's 1972, and there are no jobs for college professors. We squeak by on my mother's welfare check while my father sends out resumes. At 12, I'm tall for my age. Everyone tells me I look 16. This must be why men follow me on the street. Sometimes they touch me or pull my arms away from where I hold them, crossed tightly over my chest. The men are old, young, students, Hippies, businessmen, white, brown, black, they all terrify me. But I'm more afraid of staying indoors with my parents, who argue incessantly while my little brother screams. Donna, the hippie earth mother of our commune, decides to plant a garden in the backyard. She wrestles some space from the blackberries and puts in tomatoes, lettuce, beans, and zucchini. Only the zucchini survives. It grows to enormous proportions, snakes under the blackberry vines, deposits its huge fruit between the cracks in the sagging front porch stairs, and surrounds the house in thick green stems loaded with yellow blossoms. 
no one has ever seen anything like it. I add squash to my list of fears. Before we moved to Oakland, I had never tasted zucchini. No one in our commune, a shifting population of between 10 and 15 people, knows what to do with the dozens of enormous squash. Throwing them away is out of the question, and in spite of our large household, there is simply too much for us to consume. My mother gets the idea to take them to the apartments across the street and ask me to help her. No way, I snort, trying to hide my terror at actually speaking to the people who live there. So she asks Donna, the planter of the zucchini, who readily agrees. The two of them fill a large cardboard box with a dozen or so giant green vegetables and head out the door. The apartments are built in a U-shape around a courtyard with a full view of the street. During the day, children play on the concrete. At night, young men huddle in groups of two or three, openly dealing drugs. Peeking through the curtains of our front room, I watch my mother and Donna knock on doors, the box of zucchini on the ground between them. Curious faces peer from windows. A thin, elderly woman looks into the box, reaches in, and pulls out a big green squash. A smile spreads across her face, and she and my mother engage in a conversation. More people come out of their apartments. A few take some zucchini, but more simply stand outside and talk. There are no major grocery stores in our neighborhood. The corner stores sell alcohol, cigarettes, snack foods, and candy from behind plexiglass. The residents of our area have little choice but to shop at these stores for their daily groceries. Fresh fruits and vegetables are simply not available to apartment dwellers with limited transportation options. Years later, I hear this and other parts of Oakland referred to as food deserts. Every few days, my mother sends my brother or me to the store nearest our house with a handful of food stamps. For a couple of dollars, we buy four candy bars, a half gallon of milk, and a loaf of bread. I don't make eye contact with the clerk as she slides the receipt across the counter towards me. The box of zucchini is almost empty when Donna and my mother return, full of stories about the people who'd overcome their suspicion of the woman from the hippie house. Some of the women from the apartment building shared recipes for stuffed zucchini, batter-fried zucchini, sautéed zucchini with onions, and zucchini bread. One teenage boy suggested that the biggest squash could become speed bumps and slow down the traffic on Alcatraz Avenue. For a few moments, my mother seems happy. The weight of the previous months lifts from her face as she smiles, surprised that her impulse to give the zucchini to our neighbors went so well. We go into the kitchen and look up a recipe for zucchini bread in one of the commune's tattered cookbooks. Soon, a delicious fragrance fills the house as the bread bakes. That night, we sit around the kitchen table with some of the other residents. The bread is sweet and slightly mushy in the center, with a sugary crust. Bits of green zucchini appear as we cut the loaf into slices. Even my brother, a picky eater who won't eat weird things like mushrooms and carrot cake, consumes a tiny morsel. My mother discovers that zucchini is a nutritional powerhouse containing vitamin C and B6, as well as manganese, riboflavin, and potassium. 
Now that she knows this, zucchini appears at the dinner table nightly. My adolescent body craves nutrients, and I'm constantly hungry. I wolf it down, though my brothers won't touch it. I make zucchini bread or muffins almost every day. The next time I walk past the apartment building, I say nothing and keep my eyes down. But I don't feel quite as afraid. When a man yells at me from a passing car, I think about the recipe for zucchini bread, and I keep walking. Olivia Springer reading Zucchini Bread by Erica Goss. You can find that story as well as all of our past stories on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 40 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com.
For better or worse, a lot of our eating habits are inherited. Not genetically or through instinct necessarily, but more in the sense that they are a learned habit. Maybe an ingredient that was always around the house or was always kept in abundance has become a staple in your pantry or fridge. But what might seem normal to you and your family might be absolutely foreign to the next person. For Oregon writer Rachel Bucci, her favorite quick meal was a tradition her parents brought with them from across the Atlantic. Dear listeners, I'm writing to recommend the most quintessential British dish you've never heard of and my ultimate comfort food. You see, I didn't grow up on American comfort foods like macaroni and cheese or tuna casserole. I grew up with beans on toast. Ask someone to name a classic British dish and they might say fish and chips or shepherd's pie, but a can of baked beans poured over toast? Hear me out. My family immigrated to the United States from England in the mid-1970s. Back then, there was no such thing as modern British cuisine. There was no Jamie Oliver, no Nigella Lawson, and no Gordon Ramsay. What conjured home to my mother was a traditional Sunday roast dinner with Yorkshire puddings and all the trimmings, or sausage rolls or steak and kidney pie. You get the idea. But these weren't, and still aren't, the type of dishes you could throw together on a weeknight after work or when your little kids were feeling homesick in their new world. And as anyone who has ever lived abroad can tell you, it's difficult to recreate those familiar tastes. Even if you are able to find the necessary ingredients or seasonings, the finished dish may feel lacking. Enter Beans on Toast. Beans on Toast is exactly what the name implies, a generous ladle of canned baked beans layered over two slices of buttered white toast, arranged side by side on a plate. It really sings when the toast is slathered, well, honestly, it should be dripping in butter. The oily rings that float across the sweet tomato sauce, which has enough tang to keep the flavors in balance. Beans on Toast is a quick dinner, an after-school snack, or even breakfast. After a long day with no energy left for cooking, Beans on Toast is the perfect meal, ready in less than 10 minutes. And like most comfort foods, it's especially welcome when your spirits are dampened and you're in need of a culinary hug. While beans on toast is a hallmark of British cuisine, it's not something you're likely to find on a restaurant menu. And it certainly isn't a dish that lends itself to artisan interpretations. I wouldn't ever consider using house-made baked beans for beans on toast. And the only extra flourish I approve of is a fried egg. It's runny center marbling with the beans to create a thick, silky sauce. Beyond its downright deliciousness, there are plenty of common sense reasons to recommend beans on toast. It's cheap, it doesn't require any specialized equipment or skill in the kitchen, and with minimal effort, your results will be consistent. Apart from burning the toast, it's almost impossible to flub. I imagine my mother turned to beans on toast when she was feeling homesick because it was quick and relatively foolproof to recreate. It was the answer to, what's for dinner, when she was too fed up or too tired to cook. But what's especially telling to me is that she turned to one of the most egalitarian meals in the British food canon. My parents had emigrated to escape the rigid British class system and the prescribed order it imposed on their lives. They were from working-class backgrounds, and like many immigrant families, the opportunities they sought were largely for their children. As they started their lives over in America, both my parents went to work in low-paying, unskilled jobs. 
Once my sister and I were old enough to be left alone, my mother worked full-time on a factory assembly line. My sister and I were stereotypical latchkey kids of the 1980s. After school, we came home to an empty house. There were no fresh-baked cookies waiting for us. We were on our own when it came to after-school snacks. Beans on toast was probably the first meal I cooked myself. Coming in from the school bus tired and cold, my sister and I would make beans on toast before settling in to watch an episode of Little House on the Prairie. As we followed the adventures and hardships of the homesteading Ingalls family, we happily devoured our thoroughly British snack, feeling the quiet embrace of our mother even though she was still at work. It seems odd to feel a connection to a culinary tradition that has its roots in a 1927 marketing campaign for Heinz Baked Beans, which is where Beans on Toast originated, but I imagine it's similar to the attachment many Americans feel for Nestle Tollhouse Cookies or Libby's Pumpkin Pie. Despite using ordinary packaged ingredients, there is an alchemy that transforms the final dish into something greater than the sum of its parts. For me, Beans on Toast conjures those early childhood memories and some of the humble British traditions that my parents carried on in America. In the same vein, I've passed Beans on Toast to my own son. It started when he turned up his nose at what I'd fixed for dinner one night. It had been years since I'd made Beans on Toast, but it came to me as a quick fix in the moment. As I suggested it, I rubbed my hands together in anticipation and looked forward to revisiting the flavors of my childhood. I think you'll like it, I said, casually stirring the saucepan of beans and trying not to overhype the moment. When I placed the steaming plate on the table and watched as he took his first tentative bites, I saw his eyes widen, then close in delight. Mm -mm Mm-mm-mm, he buzzed, his head bobbing appreciatively as he chewed and smiled. When he mopped up the remaining tomato sauce with his toast crust, my heart swelled. Since that introduction, dear listener... I can't recall a time when my thoroughly American teenager has turned down an invitation to eat beans on toast. When I see him dragging a bit or I don't feel up to cooking, beans on toast is both a question and an answer. He's even taking to making it himself from time to time. I've watched him adopt the same after-school rituals, though TikTok videos stand in for Little House on the Prairie reruns, and good old beans on toast has become a reliable part of his repertoire. Claire Winkler reading Rachel Bucci's story, A Love Letter to Beans on Toast. You can find that story and all of our backstories on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. As soon as you get there, the moments pass. Stumbling around to find a path. It's nothing like the world I used to see Even when I try, it don't look right to me Forever on the edge of something big I'm right.
When you were growing up, how was dinner served at your household? Did you sit around a quiet table and talk about your day? Or was your family the type to gather around the TV and shout out the answers to Jeopardy? Or perhaps you were a latchkey kid scrounging the fridge for leftovers. And how do you think that upbringing affects the way you do dinner at home now? Virginia writer Mackenzie Jones has thought a lot about those habits and how they changed over the years. Here she is reading her story, Eight Plates. Whoever said breakfast is the most important meal of the day hasn't met my family. Breakfast provided the nutrition needed to last through the day, but dinner provided the connection that continues to last through my life. Breakfast with the Jackson family isn't where you get stimulating conversation. With six kids getting ready for school, all off in our own worlds among drooping eyelids and stifled yarns, our parents had a hard time getting us to sit at the table all at once. Breakfast by default was just a pit stop, a preface, a pregame if you will, and dinner was the main event. I don't know if there was a discussion that we were to eat dinner together every night, but it certainly was an expectation. I can't recall a time any of us were allowed to skip eating dinner together. In hindsight, I'm glad that unspoken rule was initiated. Dinner would be called by either my mom or dad, sometimes both if we were too engrossed in our homework or reading to hear them the first time, and the rest of us kids, myself, three sisters, and two older brothers, streamed in from various places, all descending on the food we've been smelling and salivating over the past hour. Eight plates would be held in careful hands, taking turns at the stove, serving ourselves portions, and then we'd all sit and wait for everyone to be ready to say grace, eat, and talk. Conversation ballooned at once, overlapping and colliding as we shared about our day. So guess what happened in math class? Barter the food, I'm trading my sweet potato for some broccoli, and told some joke pulled from a TV show while we all ate at various speed and in various order. It didn't matter what we talked about, though if you ask me, we talked about football or basketball a little bit too much, as long as we spent the time together. It became difficult over the years with six kids in different sports and after-school activities, Our schedules may fluctuate, but ending our days eating together was a constant staple. Dinner was a noisy affair, and comes with the territory when half the family are identical quadruplets and they're fighting to get any bit of individual attention they can. One voice turns into four, and that stereo surround sound, literally, as myself and my sisters were positioned at the four corners of the dinner table, with a brother in between us and parents positioned at both ends, tended to drown out conversations. It wasn't intentional. Even though us four girls were in the same grade, we all experienced the day in different ways and wanted to share the ups and downs of funny anecdotes. We all wanted to talk. We all wanted to share. We all wanted to be heard between the clattering of silverware and the hums of pleasure as tender cuts of steak all but melted in our mouths. Mom always tried to argue to eat dinner together with the TV off, but she lost that battle fast with a myriad of begs and pleas over the years. Mom, it's a new episode. I can't miss it. But Mom, we'll miss Lost. Mom, please... At least let's watch Feel Fortune and Jeopardy. You like those shows, and they're educational. I'll forever go down in Jackson family history for guessing the Wheel of Fortune food and drink category answer of key lime pie with whipped toppings after one glance at a blank clue board. She'd shake her head, sometimes roll her eyes, but give in. We talked in between commercial breaks, mostly filling her in on why a polar bear was found on a tropical island and what a number sequence had anything to do with the show, but we still talked. Nowadays, I wish we kept the TV off and our faces pointed forward more often. Before I knew it, my oldest brother graduated high school and moved on to college. It was weird at first not having him around. The dinner table topics still tended to shift towards sports, a topic I still don't care for, but there was one voice missing, the authoritative expert of all things basketball and football. 
If anyone needs to know the stat of a particular player, he could tell you with a ready ease that one could say was due to memorization, but I always felt the information had been etched onto his bones. Eight plates went to seven. Roughly three years later, my other brother graduated and went to college as well. My right-hand man, literally as he took his place at the table to my right, always within reach from when I wanted some of his food when he wasn't looking. My seatmate had moved on. He took the talker of soccer and robotics with him. Two other topics I didn't care much about, though now, 18 years later, I'm wishing I paid more attention to. Not necessarily what he was talking about, but more in how he used his quiet voice to solidify his stance and understanding of the world. Seven plates went to six. With my older brothers now off on their own and missing from the dinner table, I could take as much space as I wanted. My elbows up in the air when I cut my steak. Noses weren't at risk of being broken when reaching to pass the ketchup. My hair spent less time in my macaroni and efforts to lean forward and catch the trailing end of fleeting conversation that didn't reach my end of the table. Joke punchlines landed fresh the first time now that I could hear the jokes being told. Dad's eyes crinkled at the dramatics that we, four teenage girls, could muster over heaping plates of spaghetti because it's imperative to know who ate the last two pieces of my portion of strawberries. Mom shook her head at the voting system implemented by her daughters to add input for dinner over whether we should have pizza or chicken. But with my brothers gone, I didn't get extra bacon when we ate breakfast and dinner. I don't know what's going on in the sports world. I have to learn about new video games or tech advancements of my own volition. There's an empty space to my right. Sixth place went to two. The table got smaller and my portions increased with less people to share with, but the taste wasn't quite the same. Recipes were followed to the letter, but still missing something I couldn't put my finger on. I called mom for help. Can I call you back? Your dad and I just sat down to dinner. What else can I do but say okay and wait? I don't want to intrude on their dinner. It must be quiet without all eight of us sitting together now that we've all grown and went our separate ways. I wonder if they miss the noise. A long year comes to a close, and we find ourselves back around the table, taking our usual places. Mom and dad at the ends, four girls at the corners, and two boys in the middle. Older, wiser, but not necessarily more mature as my brother raises protest over soft holiday music when I take a french fry off his plate. Mom still makes a face when I put sugar on my white rice. My oldest brother lets out his trademark hissing laugh when recalling some childhood story that still gets on my nerves. My sisters and I still gang up on and outvote my brothers. Dad still takes a lot of pride whenever we rant and rave over his grilled salmon and asparagus, and my cheeks still hurt as I soak it all in. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 40 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com. Felt a funeral in my brain And mourners to and fro Tread and tread until it seems The sense was breaking through 
when we all were seated The service like a drum Beating, beating till I thought My mind was going on My mind was growing The box and creep across my soul with the same boots to let again and space space began to talk. a funeral in my brain And mourners to and fro Treading, treading till it seemed The sense was breaking through
Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media. All of the text from our stories is available on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. There, you can also catch up on past episodes, as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that page is by Corinne Pease, Katrin Dosa, Ashley Icomedes, Kelly Manier, Garnet Fisher, Paul Choi, Marianne Pompano, Claire Winkler, and Alex Knighton. Music in this episode by Paul Spring, Billy Sings, Frankie Cosmos, Somni, Dora Jar, LCD Sound System, Andrew Bird and Phoebe Bridgers, Metronomy and Jessica Winters, John Bryan, Michael Andrews, Balmoria, Lambert, Keith Kinniff, and Goldland. Lexi Harvey is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. And Catherine Campbell keeps the engines running behind the scenes. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPVM.